welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> okay. I mean, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, feel free to send us feedback. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, we should have one of those. We'll just go full DJ. <laughs> yeah because every time i'm at a club which is often (laughs) you're at a club (laughs) i hear you know i love it when they drop the beat and then the awoogas come out (laughs) 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 we should just that'll be our new thing i mean diplo isn't doing that that's for sure be bleeding edge of new dj technology (laughs) so anyway (laughs) We're a trivia podcast. Yeah, we are. A, if you haven't noticed already, we are a trivia podcast. Uh, and um, lately, Julia, uh, I have been doing a lot of writing and a lot of researching on art, which uh, is yes. my first love besides corn Podcasting. dogs. Oh. <laughs> okay, art, corn dogs, art, then podcast. Corn dogs, podcasting. Okay. My three loves. My three, the trinity of loves okay, in Elton's life. That's pretty unique. Hey, I mean, I'm a special gal. What can I say? Uh, so I've been doing a lot of writing, researching in my first love art and my second love and eating my second love corn okay. dogs. That, and that's fair. Uh, so I came across some some juicy deets about one of my favorite abstract modern artists. Can you translate that phrase into something? Juicy that deets? Someone like me understands. <laughs> Juicy details. Okay. Some hot tea. Okay, some hot goss. Yeah, that hot, hot goss. Okay. Uh, about a personal favorite artist of mine, uh, Georgia O'Keeffe. And I know, I mean, you told, when I texted you about this, I should tell you all, I said, I texted Julie, I was like, hey, P.S., I'm going to do, for my next topic, I'm going to do Georgia O'Keeffe. And she wrote back, okay, so we'll just advise our listeners to take a drink every time you say vagina. And I was hurt. And Were I you? Was, no, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I learned some things about that. So I will actually, I will not be saying vagina as often as you think I will, Julia. So my, my topic today is entitled, Sometimes a Flower is Just a Flower, Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia. Georgia. All right, let's get into some hot goss, some dirty Deets. Right off the top. Right off the top, Georgia O'Keeffe. Her name was, her given name was Georgia Tato O'Keeffe. Tato? Tato, T-O-T-T-O. Oh, okay. That was her middle name. Uh, She was born in 1887 in a farmhouse in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Uh, She was the second of seven children born to Francis Calixtus Calixtus O'Keeffe. His middle name was Calixtus. uh, And Ida So Roman. I know, it's very Roman. And her mother, Ida Tato O'Keefe. Her maternal grandfather, George Victor Tato, for whom Georgia was named, was a Hungarian count who came to the U.S. in 1848. So there you go. All right. He had a lot of paprika money. Yeah, yeah. You got that, yes, that very spicy red paprika money. 
Uh, by age 10, she had decided to become an artist and studied with her sister under local watercolorist Sarah Mann. Uh, she studied and ranked at the top of her class at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago from 1905 to 1906, and she studied with John Vanderpool. Uh, due to typhoid fever, she had to take a year off from her education, but in 1907, she attended the Art Students League in New York City, where she studied under William Merritt Chase, Kenyon Cox, and F. Louis Mora. Uh, in 1908, she won the league's women, William Merritt Chase Still Life Prize for her oil painting, Dead Rabbit with Cocker, Copper Pot. Dead Rabbit with Copper Pot? Yes. It's a de- it's very, um, the look of it is very Dutch. You know, like the Dutch uh-huh. still lives where there would be like a dead animal, a hanging, dead on animal a hanging off mm-hmm. of something, which is supposed to represent the earth. And like the copper is supposed to pre- represent luxury. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of a way to like show off how you could paint textures. So she won a prize. She won a prize. Uh, she was 21 at the time, it looks like. Um, her prize was a scholarship to attend the league's outdoor summer school in Lake George, New York. Hmm. Uh, while in the city, O'Keefe visited galleries, such as the famous Gallery 291, which was co-owned by her future husband, photographer Alfred Stieglitz. Uh, Gallery 291 was kind of like the hot place for modern artists to show during this time period. Um, and it was also kind of the center of like this bohemian artist like enclave that was kind of floating around New York city at the time. Um, The gallery specifically promoted the works of avant-garde artists from the United States and Europe, and also photographers like Stieglitz and his um, cohort Steichen. So in her earlier, she kind of hopped around the South. She taught art in high schools and eventually at the college level. And in the meantime, she started out painting landscapes and figuring out her artistic technique, which was becoming more and more abstract. And the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum uh, claims that she was the first American artist to practice pure abstraction. Hmm. Um, So she had been working in just kind of like a traditional manner, doing landscapes and flower, like pretty like still lives and things like that. And so she started to kind of branch out, probably due to the influence of people who were kind of circulating around 291 and Stieglitz himself and that kind of thing. Um, so she mailed uh, some abstract charcoal drawings, which are still extant, and they're now mostly in the National Gallery of Art, to a friend and former classmate at Teachers College whose name was Anita Politzer, and she took them to Alfred Stieglitz at his 291 gallery early in 1916. So Stieglitz found them to be the, quote, purest, finest, sincerest things that had entered 291 in a long while. And said that he would like to show them. So in early 1916, O'Keefe was in New York at Teachers College, Columbia University. And in April that year, Stieglitz exhibited 10 of her drawings at 291. Okay. So this is the beginning of like the Stieglitz O'Keefe whirlwind that we will be talking about throughout her career. You're going to tell me about this man? Oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you about this man. So Alfred Stieglitz was born in like mm, 1864. He is considerably older than Georgia O'Keeffe. He was was 54 at the time that they met and she was 31. So he... He was a very prominent photographer and artist in the, in New York mm-hmm. and in the art world at the time. He um, took a lot of really beautiful photos that you can still, that are still kind of floating around just in, you see a lot of like posters of them and postcards and things okay. like that. He took a photo of like the Flatiron Building, which is very, which is very popular that you see around. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a lot of like 
photography techniques that are considered um, modern photography techniques. So he played with light and he played, they had like these glowy light to them. He took a lot of like nude photography. So it wasn't just like landscapes and like children and like pretty things. It was treating photography as an art form like painting. So he was the first to kind of bring that out. And also he had a lot of influential patrons and influential artist friends and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when he started 291, that was kind of the perfect time for him to be not only an artist and a working artist, but also kind of an art dealer to a certain extent mm-hmm. and kind of an inf- like the term we use now is influencer, influencer, but like an influencer in this world. Okay. So being 54 and this is like the peak of his career, like he is the hottest thing. Um, not physically, I would say, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like he had a big fluffy mustache and like very intense eyes. And he took a lot of self portraits, obviously. Um, cause he's one of, you can t- like, you'll see, but Stieglitz is one of these artists that is like really in love with himself. Like okay. I am a photography genius and everyone needs to recognize this. So, um, he provided financial res- support to Georgia. Okay. Um, and he arranged for a residence and a place for her to paint in New York in June of 1918. He's like so taken with her work that he's like, I'm going to set you up with a, an apartment. I'm going to pay you so that you can like just work on your art. You don't have to get a job. We're going to do this. Okay. Uh, Stieglitz, who was married at the time, mm. oh, he moved okay. in with her in July. So hmm. At first, apparently at first he was like, I need a place to stay, girl. And she was like, all right, well, there's a there's an extra bedroom. So they stayed in two separate bedrooms for like a little while. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, oh, no, my bed's broken or whatever he said. I don't know what he said. You know, he was what, like, I can't the sleep. The old boy. Yeah, the old boy. So then they started sleeping together and they developed. They had an affair. So they also developed a close personal artistic relationship okay. as well. He promoted her work very heavily. Mm-hmm. So she be- she came to know the many early American modernists who were part of his circle of artists, mm-hmm. including Charles DeMuth, Arthur Dove, Marston Hartley, John Marin, Paul Strand, and Edward Steichen, the aforementioned. I don't know who any of those people these are. are. These are Amer- early American modernists. Some of them are painters. Edward Steichen is a photographer. Um, these were people who were dealing with like early modernism abstraction, okay. um, things that weren't just like straight art that you would think think of in terms of classical styles. Okay. Um, so uh, Paul Strand, Strand's photography as well, as that of Stieglitz and his many photographers' friends inspired O'Keeffe's work. So she was looking at this work, this kind of abstract photography work, and she was kind of saying, well, I could paint that too. Like maybe I can kind of take that to another level. Okay. Um, so they were kind of influencing each other. Um, also around this time, O'Keeffe became sick during the 1918 flu pandemic. So she's... Oof. She, she's very unlucky when it comes to sickness. Um, so O'Keefe began creating simplified images of natural things such as leaves, flowers, and rocks. Um, and she was most famous for her depictions of flowers, which is the first thing that you think of when you think of Georgia O'Keeffe work. And the reason why is because she made about 200 flower paintings. There were, she was most prolific in the flower, in her flower period. Um, and by the mid 1920s, they were large scale depictions of flowers of as if seen through a magnifying lens. Yes. Um, so titles such as Oriental Poppies and several Red Canna paintings are mm-hmm. what you might imagine these very like florid colored, bright, close up where it's just like stay no, stamen pistol petals. Like it's just like screaming at mm-hmm. you. 
Um, and she painted her first large scale flower painting, Petunia Number no. Two, in 1924, and that was first exhibited the year after in 1925. So, so we got Dead Rabbit with Copper. Pot. You got Dead Rabbit with Copper Pot. Then we got Petunia Number no. Seven. Petunia Number no. Two. Number Two. Yep. Um, and the I would say the most famous, um, like flower painting is called uh black iris three i know she, she it was not just like she was a member of the decembrists yeah <laughs> exactly they're not like catchy titles and i honestly black iris two <laughs> black here's black iris three which is different from black iris two i don't think that she like sat down and named any of her okay. paintings. I think she was just like, Oh, that's a black iris. It's the second one yeah. I made. You know, that's that always interesting to think about when you see like label labels on paintings in museums. You're like, did they come up with this name or, you know, well, uh, here's a little inside baseball. If you want to mm-hmm. talk about this. Um, so in terms of when you're looking at a label copy for a piece of yeah. artwork, if it was named by the artist, um, it'll say like, Red canna. Uh-huh. And it'll be in, in italics. Yeah. It's so leaning forward. Red canna, comma, 1924. Um, if it's untitled, but the artist doesn't title anything. Yeah. Which is very common. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is guy in a boat. Yeah. So it would be guy in a boat, parentheses, untitled. Untitled. Mm-hmm. So that's how you know that the guy in the boat part is just so that we can, can discern the difference. The difference. Yes, yeah. Exactly. So that's how that works. Um, so if there you they go. titled their own painting, would they like write it on the back or sometimes they did? Okay. Yeah, especially for um, uh, for selling purposes mm-hmm. for like auction and things like that. It just makes it easier for everyone to keep track of what's what. Yeah, especially if you're bringing like several pieces to mm-hmm. auction. And you're like, which one is man in a boat and which one is boy in a boat? Yeah, it's exactly. It's so confusing. Exactly. Especially if you're very prolific, if you're a very prolific artist. So there you go. That's what I'm going to do. When, it might, when, <laughs> when I'm you, retired, I'm going to just paint. Just boys and boats. <laughs> it like, feels like there's a market for that. Yeah. there. You know what? I haven't seen a boy in a boat painting in, I would say, ever. Honestly, I can't think of a single one. All right. So there you go. Um, so Stieglitz also considered O'Keefe his muse, his okay. photographic muse. Um. In uh, February 1921, Stieglitz's photographs of O'Keefe were included in a retrospective exhibition at the Anderson Galleries, which was also in New York. Uh, Stieglitz started photographing O'Keefe when she visited him in New York City to see her 1917 exhibition and continued taking photographs, many of which were in the nude. Um, so this exhibit created a not public Not in the sensation. mood. Not the, what? Not in the mood. Not in the mood. In the nude. Like, nakey. Um <laughs> So O'Keefe was the muse that Stieglitz always wanted. Okay. He, he loved the way she looked. What did she look like? Um, she, okay. I'm going to describe her to you. Um, she wore her hair, especially when she was young, she wore her hair very long. Um, she has kind she, I would, she is what you would call a handsome woman. And I'm going to, that's quick, a backhanded compliment though. No, I, yeah, I usually say that when I'm, when I'm being nasty, but <laughs> she, she was very handsome. She had, um, a great face and she has kind of for slu- radio, <laughs> great face for radio. She has, um, what the, what is known as slow eyes, not slow, like, like, 
opposite of fast, but slow, like slow gin, S-L-O-E. Okay. So she had very dark, um, moody, downturned eyes and a very strong jaw, and she wore no makeup. Um, and um, Stieglitz especially loved her hands because she had very long, beautiful fingers, and her hands were very expressive. So there were hundreds of photographs that he took of just her hands sewing or in poses next to her face or in her hair. So this is one of the more famous photographs of her. I would not have guessed that was a lady. Yes, she has um, she has masculine features. And as she got older, that became more apparent. Um, and I think she's very striking. She had a very striking face. Um, but... Stieglitz was absolutely 110% obsessed with her. And we will tweet out a picture of um, Stieglitz's photograph of O'Keefe, one of the more famous ones where she has her the black collar that she's wearing kind of upturned around her face and she's has her f- hands kind of weirdly positioned around her mouth and eyes. Hmm. Um, but he also took uh, several photographs of her just kind of in repose where she's either topless or she's wearing like a very light gauzy um, robe. And she looks very tired, like either she just woke up or she's just about to go to sleep. And it, it has a lot of personality. She seemed to, like her personality really came through the photographs, okay. which is kind of amazing. And I would, I will happily credit Stieglitz with that because he was the one behind the camera. But it was one of those things. So he photographed her basically obsessively uh, between 1918 and 1925, which is the most prolific period in his entire life. This is the, hmm. mo- the most photographs that he had ever taken. And he produced more than 350 mounted prints of O'Keefe um, that portrayed a wide range of her character, moods, and beauty. He shot many close-up studies of parts of her body, especially her hands. Um, and O'Keefe biographer Roxana Robinson states that her, quote, personality was crucial to these photographs. It was this, as much as her body, that Stieglitz was recording. Wow. Uh, In 1978, O'Keefe wrote about how distant from those photographs of her she had become. Okay. And she said, when I look over the photographs Stieglitz took of me, some of them more than 60 years ago, I wonder who that person is. It is if my one life, I have lived many lives. So she didn't really even like recognize that part of herself Mm -hmm. that happily posed for him for hours. Um, So O'Keefe had a show of her flower paintings that opened in early 1923 and Stieglitz spent much of that spring marketing her work and eventually 20 of her paintings sold for more than $3,000, which is a big deal. And in fact, she was the most successful woman artist of that time period in New York. In the 20s. In the 20s. Um, Early teens, I mean, late teens, early 20s. And she became very famous almost instantaneously, not only in the art world, but just like kind of in the general Mm -hmm. American culture um so in the summer o'keefe took off for the seclusion of the southwest in 1923 which she did every year um she spent she's the like i gotta get out of the city yeah she's like i can't do this anymore so she would always spend her summers in the southwest and she would then come back in the fall back to new york um so for a while stieglitz was alone with the wife of his photographer friend paul strand her name was beck strand Rebecca, but they, everyone mm-hmm. called her Beck, um, at Stieglitz's summer home in Lake George. So you can imagine. He took a series of nude photos of her, and he soon became infatuated with her, which is a common thing with Stieglitz. Hmm. Like, this guy couldn't just take a picture of a nude lady without wanting to bone her. You know what I mean? It's like, let's be professional 
Alfred. Okay, you're in your 50s. He's in his, actually, he's almost 60 at this point. So it's mm-hmm. like, come on. Mm-hmm. This is the 1920s. So they had a brief physical affair uh, before O'Keefe returned in the fall. And O'Keefe could tell what had happened. But since she didn't see Stieglitz's new lover as a serious threat to their relationship, she let things pass. Uh, six years later, she would get her revenge because she would have her own affair with Beck Strand in New Mexico. Hmm. So there you go. That's... They're I don't very, know. It's very in... bohemian. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, like, do what you will. Um, in 1924, Stieglitz finally divorced from his wife, Emmeline. It took like eight years. And he married O'Keefe. So for the rest of their lives together, the relationship was, as her biographer said, a collusion, a system of deals and trade-offs tacitly agreed to and carried out for the most part without the exchange of a word. Preferring avoidance to confrontation on most issues, O'Keefe was the principal agent of collusion in their union. That doesn't sound like a very happy no, marriage. No, it was, it was not happy, and it gets worse. So um, after having moved into a 30th floor apartment in the Shelton Hotel in 1925, O'Keefe began a series of paintings of the city skyscrapers and skyline. So she had a city series as well. She mostly did like rural landscapes and things because she kind of grew up in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And then she started on her flower paintings because she was toying with abstraction, toying with colors. And then she was started looking outward a little bit more. And so she started doing New York city. Um, So one of her most notable works, which demonstrates her skill at depicting the buildings in the precisionist style, which just means that it was very realistic and tight um, is a painting called radiator building night, New York. Uh, other examples, including New York Street with Moon, 1925, and The Shelton with Sunspots, New York, from 1926, and City Night, also from 1926. Uh, in 1924, Stieglitz arranged a simultaneous exhibit of O'Keefe's works of art and his photographs at Anderson Galleries, and arranged for other major exhibits. And the Brooklyn Museum held a retrospective of her work in 1927. So how are you going to have a retrospective like while someone's still in their career? working? Yeah. Um, at this point, she's been an artist for t- at least 10 years, okay. like a, a popular working artist for mm-hmm. 10 years. And she's so prolific that it's easy to do a retrospective because it's just like a retrospective just means like this is what she's done it so far. It feels like greatest hits to me is it what does. retrospective And that's means. usually what retrospective now means. Oh, okay. So like an artist that's been working for 75 yeah. years, you're going to pick the best of the best and you're going to do a show of it and then they're going to show up and kiss people and it's going to be a big deal. But back then, retrospective was just like, these are the hits, but these are like, this is what she's been working on. So there's that. Uh, In 1928, he announced to the press that six of her calla lily paintings sold to an anonymous buyer in France for $25,000. But there is no evidence that this transaction occurred the way Stieglitz reported. Hmm. However, due to the press, O'Keeffe's painting sold at a higher price from that point forward. So by the late Mm. 20s, she was noted for her work as an American artist, particularly for the paintings of New York and the close-up paintings of flowers. So it was like maybe an artificial... like Yeah, it was a little bit of like creating buzz, like, Mm. oh, look... you know, anonymous buyers in France, the hub of art Mm. and like taste. So that's what kind of drove up the prices, which is kind of savvy and not illegal. Um, So he made her some good money doing that. Okay. I mean, she was a working artist her whole life and did not have to work any like normal, regular jobs and really 
did well for herself in terms of her finances um, without any help from Stieglitz, to be honest. Um, so she made a cityscape called East River from the 30th story of the Shelton Hotel in 1928, which is a dismal painting of her view of the East River and smoke emitting factories in Queens. So this is like the first painting that you can see that she's like she's not, not happy. super happy. Um, and the reason why is because the same year Stieglitz had an affair with photographer and activist Dorothy Norman who worked at the 291 gallery. She looked exactly like O'Keefe hmm. and she was 23. He was 64. Uh, Dorothy Norman was ob, ob, obsessed with Stieglitz. Obsta- obsessed. She was married and he was obviously married to O'Keefe and she would come to 291 every day, hmm. multiple times a day asking him like, Oh, do you need anything? Like I can help you with this. Like I can mount, mount a show, like I'm whatever. Just going to the coffee shop. Yeah. Do you want do a you coffee? Want I mean, I can just grab you a coffee. Like I'm not doing anything. She was so obsessed with Stieglitz that, um, she had a baby and two days after giving birth, she was back at 291. Yeah. So it's like Dorothy, just cool kill. your jets, cool it. So hmm. they start having an affair because Stieglitz can't not he's, bone. He's a, the Henry the eighth of the, Exactly. Of, of the, the art New York world. City art scene. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for making that connection. So she's 23. She's obsessed with him. He's, I'm sure he said to Georgia at one point, he was like, what was I supposed to do? Not sleep not with her? Have sex with her? She's 23. She looks just like you. Like, I'm sure he said that. <laughs> um, so then O'Keefe was hospitalized for depression. Um, and O'Keefe and Stieglitz lived together in New York until 1929. Uh, when O'Keefe began spending part of the year in the Southwest and that served as an inspiration for her paintings of New Mexico landscapes and images of animal skulls. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so she started spending more and more time in New Mexico, longer stretches of time. Um, she traveled by train with Backstrand to Taos, which was, um, Taos, New Mexico is, was kind of a artist enclave. A lot of New Yorkers, the Ashcan school, a lot of modern artists would travel to Taos because Taos was, an untouched okay. rural landscape. And also Taos was the town where the Pueblo Native Americans lived. Okay. And the Pueblos were uh, most known for being mostly untouched by American uh, enforcers. Okay. So a lot of artists saw them as being like pure and untouched. So they wanted to go out there and paint them and okay. paint their landscape and things like that because it has not been touched by modernity. Mm. So it's a back to the land thing. It's like a white people back to the land thing. So Mabel Dodge Luhan lived out in Taos. She was um, a very rich woman and a patron of the arts. And so she started at this enclave in Taos where artists would come and they would live with her and um, she would set them up with studios. So that's sweet what O'Keefe deal. did. Yeah, it's a, it's a sweet deal. And she was, I mean, she was the progenitor of like a lot of major art that was coming out of Taos at the time hmm. because she just had so much money and was very supportive of that. So... Um, in 1932, Stieglitz mounted a 40-year retrospective of 127 of his works at The Place, which was his new art gallery. It was called The Place. Not very creative. No, he's not very creative. For an artist, you think, but no. <laughs> so he included all of his most famous photographs, but he also purposely chose to include recent photos of O'Keefe, who, because of her years in the Southwest Sun, looked older than her 45 years, next to portraits of his young lover, Dorothy Norman. It's kind of so mean. It was very mean, and it was p- 
pointed and everyone knew it. That was the thing. So it was one of the few times he acted spitefully to O'Keefe in public. And it may have been as a result of their increasingly intense arguments in private about his control over her art. And then in 1933, um, I'm sure due to this very poor treatment, she was hospitalized for two months after having suffered a nervous breakdown. Um, And it was largely because she was heartbroken over Stieglitz continuing affair with Dorothy Norman and him basically rubbing it in her face that she's young and beautiful and now O'Keefe is old. And so George is living in New Mexico. Yes. For most of the time now. Yes. Most of the time. And Uh, Alfred is still in New York. Alfred is still in New York. Yes. And she actually said, O'Keefe actually said, um, the reason why Stieglitz never came to New Mexico or even visited her for a long period of time was because, and this is almost a direct quote, he's a hypochondriac. He can't be more than 50 feet from a doctor at any time. (laughs) So she kind of portrays Stieglitz as like in her writings and things that he's a little bit of a super neurotic. Yeah. Neurotic New Yorker. So she had her nervous breakdown and she didn't paint for a long time. Hmm. In early 1933 and 1934, O'Keefe recuperated in Bermuda and she returned to New Mexico in mid-1934. Okay. So in 1945, she visited Ghost Ranch Ooh. for the first time, which was in an abandoned hacienda north of um, Abiquiu, which is a, a town in New Mexico. And she decided immediately, I got to live there. Um, and in 1940, she moved into a house on the ranch property. Uh, and the varicolored cliffs of ghost ranch inspired some of her most famous landscapes and among guests to visit her at the ranch over the years were charles and ann Lindbergh, mm-hmm. uh singer songwriter Jody mitchell oh. poet alan ginsburg and photographer ansel adams so in new mexico she collected rocks and bones from the desert floor and made them and the distinctive architectural and landscape forms of the area subjects in her work uh known as a loner o'keefe explored the land she loved often in her ford model a which she purchased and learned to drive in 1929 um she often talked about her fondness for ghost ranch in northern new mexico as in 1943 when she explained quote such a beautiful untouched lonely feeling place such a fine part of what i call the far away is a place i have painted before even now i must do it again so Shortly after O'Keefe arrived for the summer in New Mexico in 1946, Stieglitz suffered a cerebral thrombosis and fell into a coma. Yeah. Um, Get out of here. Yeah, get out of here. He was like 86 at this point, too. So O'Keefe returned to New York, and she found Dorothy Norman was in the hospital room. Uh, And all I I had on this for my research was she left, and O'Keefe was with him when he died. Uh, But I imagine that it was like, O'Keefe comes in. She's got her big wide hat. She pulls it off. She's all dusty. She walks into the room and there's Dorothy Norman. And they just look at each other for like a beat. And those big giant dark eyes that O'Keefe has just like weathered by the sun. And Norman was just like, all right. And she got up and left never to be seen again. Are you sure she didn't get tossed out a window? I mean, she may have been, but O'Keefe always strikes me as like, very um, formidable, but very quiet. It's more like a smoldering anger. Yes, a smoldering anger. Um, so she was with Stieglitz when he died, for better or for worse, I guess. Uh, and they were still legally married, even though they had not spent a lot of time together for almost 20 years. Um, so O'Keefe took his ashes to Lake George and, uh, quote, put him where he could hear the water. And she spent the next three years mostly in New York settling his estate And uh, finally, she moved permanently to New Mexico in 1949, spending time at both Ghost Ranch 
and at the Abiquiu house that she had made into her studio. I, I want to go back a second. Sure. So she spread his ashes at Lake George. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever thought about like the proliferation of people spreading like cremains in oh, places yeah. and like mm. how much have we walked over? Oh yeah. Walked over, inhaled, accidentally drank, <gasps> accidentally ate. Uh Yeah. Yeah, we got lots of people inside us. So baby. it feels like there's like feels like there's rules, but I don't know where you find them and also that nobody follows them. Well, I think, you know, because I know that Fenway has an issue. Like major like a lot of like public spaces yeah. have issues with people like leaving like my dad always wanted to have his remains sprinkled over Fenway Park. I'm sure Dave Tag wants us to sprinkle his remains over Fenway. No, we're not gonna not, do that, Dad. We can't do that. I'm gonna get arrested. Um so a lot of times like groundskeepers will find like tiny piles of ashes and they'll have to like, uh, what do I do with this kind of thing? So there's, I think there's rules at least, if not laws against sprinkling ashes in, in like public, like governmental spaces or privately owned spaces. But if you want to sprinkle your ashes in your backyard, I think you can do that. And also if you're just like, if it's a windy day at Fenway and you're just like, ha ha, and then dad is like <laughs> in the wind. <laughs> so your mother plans to walk right into the Niagara. Yeah. Mom's going to walk into Niagara Falls. Okay. And dad is going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bust open a bag of him. <laughs> while you're walking across. While I'm like trying to juggle, like accidentally juggle like a hot dog and a soda. I'm going to be like, could you hold this for me, sir? It's going to be like a whole like comedy of errors thing and then when no one's looking i'm just gonna bust open the bag of dad and he's gonna into the air lauren that's fucked up (laughs) i'm not saying that's what i'm gonna do i he hasn't even told me that he doesn't tell me he has not told me what he wants with his cremains if he wants to be cremated maybe he wants to be buried and he might live forever he might live forever he's really trying himself that's I think his main goal right now is to never die. So this might this might be a moot point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is we have a little bit of Stieglitz inside of all of us. So <laughs> that's yeah, yikes. Um, so yeah, uh, so it, during the 1940s, O'Keefe had two one-woman retrospectives. The first at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1943. And her second was in 1946 when she was the first woman artist to have a retrospective at the MoMA, at the Museum of Modern Do you Art. run your own retrospective? Or somebody else is like, we want to have a show about you and we'll call it a retrospective. Um, I I'm would, just stuck up on the term. No, I, no, I get it. Um, I think, uh, I think someone else puts that yeah. on for you. Yeah, you're never like I'm putting on a retrospective because I, I then you and I could both do a retrospective. Yeah, I'm gonna do a retrospective of Lauren Tay, Lauren's greatest hits, my greatest hits, and then just photos of myself. But you know, the Art Institute of Chicago and the MoMA are not going to be like, yeah, bring it here. We'll do the Lauren Tay <laughs> retrospective. So I think I think this is more of an indication that there were major museums and galleries. Interested in Interested her. in doing retrospectives of her work when, in a time period where the most famous contemporary and modern artists of the time were men, mm-hmm. European and American. Okay. So um, the idea that these two major institutions wanted to have retrospectives within three years of each other is a big deal. So it shows how popular she was okay. and how influential she was as a woman artist. 
So there it is. Does that help? Great. Okay. (laughs) Um, The Whitney Museum of American Art began an effort to create the first catalog of her work in the mid-1940s. Um, so O'Keefe enjoyed traveling to Europe and then she loved traveling around the world beginning in the 1950s. Cause she, f- I, I get the sense that she was like, she felt tied down to con- constantly going back to New York mm-hmm. and like splitting her time still, even though she was only spending like one or two months or a couple of weeks a year by the 19, by the early forties in okay. New York, because she felt like she had to take care of Stieglitz in some mm-hmm capacity even if she wasn't physically there they wrote to each other all the time and he still like while he was alive he was in control of like how her art was distributed and who Mm. who was selling it okay and because they were legally married and because i think their finances were tied together to a certain extent that helped her especially at first but i feel like towards the end of his life she was really feeling the pressure of okay you don't have to take care of me anymore like i'm a 50 year old woman so there was that um, so she really like blossomed after Stieglitz died and several times she took rafting trips down the Colorado river, including a trip down the Glen Canyon, Utah area in 1961. Wow. Um, so the Worcester art museum held a retrospective of her work in 1960 and 10 years later, the Whitney museum of American art mounted the Georgia O'Keeffe retrospective exhibition, which is like the one. Okay. So this is like everything she's ever done. Here we Everyone go. Everyone talks about this. So um, Todd Webb, a photographer she met in the 1940s, moved to New Mexico in 1961, and he often made photographs of her, as did numerous other important American photographers, who consistently presented O'Keefe as a, quote, loner, a severe figure, and self-made person. Uh, While O'Keefe was known to have a prickly personality, Webb's photographs portray her with a kind of quietness and calm, selecting a relaxed friendship and revealing new contours of O'Keefe's character. So she was kind of like this witchy loner like woman of the earth kind of character that a lot of people saw her as which is why it seems like a lot of famous artists kind of made pilgrimages to her place in abiquiu so that you know like Joni mitchell and ansel adams and you know all these people were going to see her because they wanted to kind of sit at her feet okay um So in 1972, O'Keefe lost much of her eyesight due to macular degeneration, and it left her with only peripheral vision, unfortunately. Kind of like Claude Monet. Yes, kind of like Claude Monet. Um, If only he had put on his glasses. Uh, She stopped oil painting without assistance in 1972, and in the 1970s, she made a series of works in watercolor. Um, Her autobiography, called Georgia O'Keefe, uh, was published in 1976 and was a bestseller. She used up all that creativity yeah. on uh, on naming her paintings. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, in 1973, she hired 27-year-old John Bruce Juan Hamilton. He was a potter, and uh, he was her live-in assistant, and then he was her caretaker. He taught O'Keefe to work with clay and helped her write her autobiography, and he worked with her uh, for 13 years. Um, O'Keefe became increasingly frail in her late 90s and she moved to Santa Fe in 1984 where she died on March 6th, 1986 at the age of 98. Hmm. Uh, Her body was cremated and her ashes were scattered as she wished on the land around Ghost Ranch. So uh, Judy Chicago, as I had mentioned in a previous episode, uh, she created the dinner party in 1979. Uh, she gave O'Keefe a prominent place in her artwork in recognition of what many prominent feminist artists considered groundbreaking introduction of sensual and feminist imagery in her works of art. 
Although feminists celebrated O'Keefe as the originator of female iconography, O'Keefe refused to join the feminist art movement or cooperate with any all-woman projects. Hmm. Uh, she disliked being called a woman artist and wanted to be considered just an artist. So paintings like Black Iris 3, it's commonly thought like which art historian Linda Nochlin interpreted as a morphological metaphor for female genitalia. A lot of people thought her flowers were giant vaginas, just like vaginas, vaginas, vaginas. Take your drinks, guys. Take seven drinks, right? It was, I think I said like it four times, but whatever. Um, O'Keefe overly overall rejected such interpretations in a 1939 text accompanying an exhibition of her work by writing quote, well, I made you take time to look at what I saw. And when you took time to really notice my flower, you hung all your own associations with flowers on my flower. And you write about my flower as if I think and see what you think and see of the flower. And I don't. <laughs> so she attempted to do away with sexualized readings of her work by adding a lot of detail. Okay. Um, but as you and I both know, death of the artist it doesn't matter what georgia o'keefe thought of her flower paintings if you see a vagina it's a vagina i know you're making a face at me and i'm not saying you're seeing a vagina julia but regardless of whether or not it's a it's an interpretation of something it's supposed to be a symbol of something mm-hmm. they're very beautiful paintings of flowers but you should know and everyone should know that O'Keefe when she was originally painting them she wasn't putting any kind of like morphology on it yeah it was just she thought that flowers close up were really cool and beautiful and they looked abstract she was kind of going for like an abstraction of it Mm -hmm. so instead of a still life where it's like a bunch of flowers in a vase it was like what are the details of a flower let's look at the details of a flower and see them as shapes and colors and what can you see in that Um, so her work is vivid. It's alternately abstract, realistic, surreal, and provocative, whether it be her flower pieces, her city architectural work, or her barren landscapes of the Southwest. O'Keefe was always stubbornly, eternally, and incandescently herself. Um, our local art museum, Memorial Art Gallery has a a two-sided painting, um, by Georgia O'Keefe from 1931. Uh, it's called Jawbone and Fungus. It's a, it's an animal jawbone. My favorite topics. (laughs) Yeah. It's an animal jawbone and a giant like black mushroom behind it. And then on the reverse, uh, there's a colorful abstraction that doesn't have a title. It seemed like she was just kind of playing around with color and was just making use of Mm -hmm. the paper. Um, But it's cool because uh, the way that the Memorial Art Gallery displays it is that there's like a hole in the wall and it's just like uh, a wall and you can look at the obverse on one side and then you walk around the wall and there's the reverse so it's a it's a glory hole it is a glory hole of georgia o'keefe work (laughs) so not for nothing but in 2014 o'keefe's 1932 painting which was called jimsum weed which is a very beautiful painting of flowers it sold for $44,405,000, which is more than three times the previous world auction record for any female artist. And it's still to this day, the record for the highest paid amount for an artwork of a female artist. Wow. And the title has Jimson Weed. In Jimson it. Weed. Yep. So there you go. Um, so my quiz is going to be on flowers. Question number one. The Titan Arum, which holds the record for the world's largest flower at three meters tall, is also the smelliest. 
What more common name is the Titan Aaron known as? Question number two. The extremely expensive spice saffron comes from what kind of flower? Question number three. I know the British can be rather whimsical, but this is ridiculous. What is the year rent paid to Prince Charles for his lands on the island of Skilly off the coast of Cornwall? Question number four. You can sing the song if you want. Idelweiss means what in German? Question number five. The spiraling curve of some species of forget-me-nots is the reason they have what vicious alternate name? Question number six. Didn't you take flower languages in college? Try and remember. What does a bunch of pink carnations signify? Question number seven. This ancient and tall-growing plant is native to China and is great for the environment given that it releases 30% more oxygen into the atmosphere and absorbs more carbon dioxide compared to other plants. Can you name this Indian symbol of friendship? Question number eight. What is the relationship between a cactus and a succulent? Question number nine. This common type of indoor-outdoor plant with pretty flowers has leaves that can smell like roses, nutmeg, coconut, lemon, lime, and lemon rose, among others. What is it? And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name five flowers or plants, and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. First, turkey corn. Second, flute root. Third, devil's lipstick. Fourth, sneezewort. And five, gas plant. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with answers. Okay. Home stretch. Here we go. Question number one. The Titan Aram, which holds the record for the world's largest flower at three meters tall, is also the smelliest. What more common name is the Titan Aram known as? Corpse flower. It is the corpse flower. Um, our zoologist, Anna, brought one to the museum. Did she really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Did she? Is it hers or did she? It was have, hers. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's got a corpse flower. That's yeah. insane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's native to the Sumatran rainforest. Um, and its strong aroma is reminiscent of rotting flesh, mm-hmm. as per the name. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It only blooms like once a year. Yeah, or it does right? not bloom often at mm-hmm. all. Um, of course, not Anna. even once a year. It's like very rare. Once every like, yeah, because people like travel. Mm-hmm. There's a um, yeah. There's like a greenhouse somewhere like that. F- that's famous. That has a corpse flower, and people yeah. travel from all over to find it. We gotta find out. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. 
The extremely expensive spice saffron comes from what kind of flower? A crocus. Yes. Uh, the species crocus sativus, commonly known as the saffron crocus. Um, it was probably first cultivated in ancient Greece. So there you go. Question number three. I know the British can be rather whimsical, but this is ridiculous. What is the year rent paid to Prince Charles for his lands on the islands of Skilly off the coast of Cornwall? Is it like a pocket full of posies or something? <laughs> You're not that far off. It is a single daffodil. I know, right? Um, so apparently the island is known for its flower farms, specifically mm-hmm. daffodils, and um, they ship them around the world. They're like the the world's greatest daffies. So there you go. Uh, question number four. You can sing the song if you want. Edelweiss means what in German? It's like white flower. Uh, it means noble and white, apparently. Um, Edelweiss is actually more of a silver color, if you're being pedantic, uh, with yellow accents and a star-shaped flower. The leaf has the texture of felt. Uh, it grows about 12 inches high and will slowly spread from a clump that appears to be grass when first coming up in the early spring. So there you go. Uh, question number five. The spiraling curve of some species of forget-me-nots is the reason they have what vicious alternate name? Hmm. I don't know. It's called scorpion grass. I had never heard it called that. It doesn't sound right. Forget-me-nots supposed to be like a lovely... Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, <laughs> well, forget-me-nots got their better known name from the literal translation of the German word uh, vergissmenicht. Uh, they are a very common <laughs> genus and bear clusters of small flowers with five petals apiece. Uh, their seeds spread readily because they cling to fur and clothes. And one species called uh, Myostosis alpetris is the state flower of Alaska and is a common sight there. Um, question number six, didn't you take flower languages in college? Try and remember. What does a bunch of pink carnations signify? Like friendship. Um, it, it signifies I'll never forget you. I was trying to do you like think a think of forget me not. Would. Right? Cause they're called forget me nots. It's like right there in the name. Um, white chrysanthemums signify truth. Uh, and the daisy signifies innocence. Um, and a little extra trivia for you. The term daisy comes from its yellow center, which signified the sun to most people and was originally called a day's eye, like the sun, day's eye. Hmm. So it's been bastardized to daisy. Uh, question number seven. This ancient and tall growing plant is native to China and is great for the environment, given that it releases 30% more oxygen in the atmosphere and absorbs more carbon dioxide compared to other plants. Can you name this Indian symbol of friendship? How about bamboo? It is bamboo. Um, This is interesting. Some species of bamboo develop flowers after 65 or 120 years. And this is crazy to me. All plants of one bamboo species develop flowers at the same time, no matter where they are located in the world. Oh, that's weird. Isn't that weird? Like they all like can feel it. They're like time to bloom. It's weird. (laughs) Also in China, a bamboo flower flowering signifies a time of famine because it happens so infrequently hmm. so it's actually like a, a like bad it's a bad sign. omen yeah okay hmm. um question number eight what is the relationship between a cactus and a succulent i just bought a bag of soil for this um <laughs> is a cactus a type of succulent you are you are very close all cacti are succulents Okay. But not all succulents are cacti. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, succulent is a descriptive term that can be used to describe not only cacti and jade plants, but many species and other families as well. So when you refer to something as a succulent, it's not like one type of 
right. plant. So there you go. I am not allowed to um, water any of the succulents <laughs> in our house. Because I was going to say, your succulents are I, looking great. Um, I am a chronic overwaterer. You know what? That's okay. All of us plant ladies have one type of plant that we cannot me it's vines vines mm. just will not grow or live in my presence mm. i don't know what it is and your your vine Office. looks beautiful he's, yep happy he's doing I, great yep but i i'm like oh the soil's dry i'm gonna water it and then <laughs> our friend got us a succulent and it's like water in the summertime every three to six weeks i was like what <laughs> but the soil is dry now yeah oh yeah so they don't I, like it i gotta i know I gotta make a chart. (laughs) You should mark it on the calendar. That's what you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, Question number nine. This common type of indoor-outdoor plant with pretty flowers has leaves that can smell like roses, nutmeg, coconut, lemon, lime, and lemon rose, among others. What is it? How about a begonia? Uh, Very close. It's a geranium. Oh, okay. Um, Although the varieties that are cultivated for their scented leaves have much smaller flowers than common geranium. So they're cultivated just for the scent leaves, not necessarily like the pretty flowers. But I've noticed, I like geraniums. I think they smell cool, like great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the flowers that smell, it's the leaves. I know if you rub yeah. their leaves because they're kind of soft. They remind me of tomato plants. Yeah. They have a very um, strong leafy mm-hmm. scent to them. Very green. Okay. And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name five flowers or plants and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. Okay. Okay, ready? First, turkey corn. Real. Yes. It is better known as fringed bleeding heart. You've seen bleeding heart. Yes. Yes. Second, flute root. Fake. It is fake. Good job. Uh, Third, devil's lipstick. Real. It is not. (laughs) (laughs) Fourth, sneeze wart. Real. It is real. It originally got this name because it was used as sneezing powder. Uh, The flower would be dried up and used to help clear out people's sinuses by making them sneeze. And we have come a long way since then. (laughs) And finally, gas plant. Fake. It's real. It's uh, also known as the burning bush. And it earned its name because its leathery green leaves, flowers, and seed pods give off a strong lemon-scented vapor, which can be ignited with a match when there isn't a breeze. That's not where I thought you were going with that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's a gas plant because it literally gives off not you know gas i mean it's a gas i guess like in the most pure definition it's flammable yeah but it has to be a very still day or night yeah because it it's not like it's like you know pushing it into the air constantly Mm -hmm. so you have to like really sneak up on it (laughs) so there you go that is my quiz on flowers and my topic on our georgia o'keefe wow thank you oh you're so welcome anytime I'm happy. Happy to do this. I'm happy to do this podcast whenever you want. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, um, we haven't had any any listener submitted trivia in a, in a grip. So is that a, it's, is it's that a term a Steve I don't uses. I think it's a bim bam thing, I think. Oh. Um, in a while. Uh, so, you know, guys, send us your listener submitted trivia. Yeah, like a fact you like to pull out at a cocktail at a, party yep. or or the question that you won Final Jeopardy on. Yes, that's Please good. feel free to share. Or or I will happily, I'm going to say, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I will happily take a, a story around the trivia thing 
Like, cause I frequently embarrass myself in meetings when I tell people like, did you know that the 50 million pounds of skin that are on around the world? And then there's a silence that hangs over the meeting and they go, that's interesting, I guess. So if you have a story about how you whipped out a piece of trivia, either to your benefit or possibly to your detriment, um, we would love to hear that so that I can feel like I am not the only person who can't help herself when she is confronted with some piece of knowledge that she definitely knows. So, and if you want to do that, uh, you can email us at uh, missinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at missinfopod on Twitter. Um, you can also uh, catch us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. It's called misinformation colon, a trivia podcast. Look for our pink logo. Um, and you can also catch us on our website, triple dub dot misinfopod.com. And Julia, and, where can they hear us? Um, you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer using our RSS feed. We're not currently on Spotify, guys. We have submitted to be on Spotify, but since we're just like a lowly, a lowly three-person operation coming out of my dining room. Um, we don't have the... Do they have like a listener requirement or something? Um, they, You can request to be added, but they have to add you. Oh, okay. So it's, it's an internal decision-making yeah. process that is not we are not privy mm-hmm. to and since we're not like on a network we don't get like oh, automatically yeah, added so yeah because i mean i know that uh, my favorite murder just got added to spotify and they've been around for a while yeah. so i don't feel that bad i mean <laughs> if spotify doesn't want us then i don't want spotify they just probably don't know about us yet is okay. all i'm not gonna be bitter about it but there's so many other ways to listen to yes. us oh yeah you can listen to us in any way and if you want to email us we can send you like i don't know the raw file of us no no you don't no no i'm sorry we won't send you that. You don't want to hear us snuffling and like m- making conversation with each other. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. You guys, we appreciate you. Yes. Um, will. We will catch you. Next we'll get time. you next time. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.